Hi, I'm Doug Trumbull, and you're listening to The Optical. Welcome to episode 10 of The Optical. Wait, what happened to episode 9? Well, I'm renumbering episodes because I realize it's kind of a silly thing to attach one episode to one issue of Cinefix when sometimes it might not be related to an issue of Cinefix at all, or there might be several episodes related to a single issue of Cinefix. So it was going to get confusing. So we're going to stop that right now. The episodes have been renumbered on the new website. So if you go to opticalpodcast.com, you'll see the new layout with all the pretty images and everything. And it's it's still a little bit of a work in progress. But my friend Al, who was a guest on our very first episode of The Optical, has taught me the value of getting something done and out there into the world and getting a reaction to it and iterating on it. So that's what we're doing right now. So please go to the website, check it out. I'd love to hear what you think. If you have any comments at all about the podcast or the website, just drop me a line at feedback at opticalpodcast.com. But for right now, we're going to talk to Douglas Trumbull and learn more about his history and what led him to champion immersive cinema. Thank you so much, Doug, for coming on. Great to be here. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got into the business originally and, and kind of starting at graphic films? I thought I was going to be an architect when I was in high school. And uh, after that, I, I took a set of courses at a local community college that were pre-architecture curriculum. So I was into drawing and painting and life drawing and graphic design and uh, Mm -hmm. a variety of different uh, very early stage art courses. And I found out that I kept drifting toward wanting to uh, paint or illustrate or design things that had to do with science fiction because I was an avid science fiction reader. Mm -hmm. My mind was very focused on the worlds of Robert Heinlein or uh, Arthur Clarke or Ray Bradbury or, you know, all these uh, science fiction writers. And right. um, so my, my portfolio tended to be full of spaceships and alien planets, <laughs> like, you know, science fiction book cover kind of things that you'd see on If Magazine or something like that, or Amazing Stories. Right. That's what landed me a job at Graphic Films, who were making kind of specialty contract films for the U.S. Air Force and NASA uh, about the space program primarily. And it was all trying to be as photorealistic as possible within the realm of airbrush illustration Mm. and animation techniques. And so I was doing a lot of these little movies with them. And that led to a project for the New York World's Fair that opened in 1964 and 65 in what was called the Travel and Transportation Pavilion. And it was a movie called To the Moon and Beyond, Mm. sponsored by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. And it was a Cinerama 360 process that had been developed by Cinerama, which was very simple, actually. It was 10 perf, 65 millimeter negative, 70 millimeter prints at 24 frames for projection onto a kind of a planetarium dome Mm -hmm. using a 10 perf, 70 millimeter film projector and a stereo soundtrack. So I was doing all of the illustrations for this, which was lunar landscapes and stars and planets. And we were shooting a lot of multiplane material and other kinds of animation techniques because the movie was kind of like a a powers of 10 because it it began with the Big Bang and ended in the microcosm. 
Hmm. So it went through all kinds of scale changes over about 15 or 20 minutes. This film was subsequently seen by Arthur Clarke and Stanley Kubrick at the fair. Mm -hmm. And he contacted Graphic Films and said, well, I'm working on this film called Journey Beyond the Stars. And I'm looking for people with talents in this particular area of doing photorealistic space animation photography. Right. And so my boss, who was Con Pedersen, who later worked on 2001 with me, mm. and his boss, Les Novros, who owned Graphic Films, you know, agreed to this contract. And um, I'm just this young 22-year-old kid doing <laughs> illustrations for this movie called Journey Beyond the Stars. And I'm doing lunar landscapes and various kinds of lunar landers and pods and spacecraft and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that was all going really well. And Kubrick seemed to be happy with what he was getting, which was all being mailed to him daily from L.A. to New York. And subsequent to that, he decided for his own reasons to make the movie in London and felt that the communication lag between London and L.A. was just going to be too difficult. Right. And decided to just, you know, move, he was moving on with his production. He was moving his whole family and everybody back to London. Sure. And terminated the contract with Graphic. And I got laid off because Graphic didn't have any more work. And I asked Con Pedersen, I said, well, you know, I, this is really a cool movie. I want to work on this movie. Stanley Kubrick's an amazing director. <laughs> and uh, this would be a terrific opportunity. And he said, well, I really can't tell you because I'm under an NDA with this whole project. And I said, come on, give me a break. And he, <laughs> he, he finally relented and said, OK, well, I, I can give you a clue, which is that Kubrick's personal phone number is penciled into the lower left hand corner of the bulletin board at the office. So. <laughs> I said, okay, thanks for that. And I cold called Kubrick directly. Oh, wow. And uh, I said, well, I've been, you don't know me. I don't think you know me uh, or of my, me as an individual, but I've been working on your movie and I really like it and I'd love to continue working on it. And I can't remember the details of the conversation, but it immediately led to him sending two airfare tickets for me and my wife to come to London to start working on 2001. Hmm. So that's what began my film career was this introductory giant screen movie to the moon and beyond wow. which led to working on 2001 which was yet another giant screen 70 millimeter cinerama movie two cinerama projects back to back hmm. working with kubrick was quite an extraordinary experience because he felt a kind of a responsibility to make a movie that would be what you would call an epic adventure like how the West was one or uh, Lawrence of Arabia or something, mm -hmm. that there was definitely a style and a purpose to the giant screen, which was different from conventional melodramatic storytelling. Right. He actually consciously said, he said, I feel like I have a responsibility to make how the universe was one. <laughs> you know, I have to make how the West was one in space. And I have this epic giant screen thing I want to do. And we all set out to try to figure out how to do that. And it was a process that Kubrick went through and that we all went through together, mm -hmm. which was a kind of creative cinematic developmental process, which started out with a screenplay that was conventional in many ways, because it had a voiceover narration explaining what the Donna Man sequence was all about and what was happening to these guys. Mm. And as the movie progressed, Kubrick started abandoning any kind of narrative. And he wanted the images to just speak for themselves. He wanted the movie to just play out as a real-time event, so to speak, hmm. as a almost a first-person experience for the audience to feel like they were on this adventure and in space and going to Jupiter. Hmm. He didn't want to initially, but as the movie progressed, 
he kept eliminating conventional reverse angles on cure delay and the pod or over the shoulder shots during dialogue sequences and started going more for these almost point of view shots of Hal's eye watching these guys from various cameras all through the spacecraft. And then the camera then takes on the point of view of the principal character, particularly during the whole uh, space sequence and uh, Stargate. Right. And even though there were experiments, even late in the movie, because the Stargate didn't come until very late in the movie, there were experiments of saying, well, a conventional filmmaker would have an over-the-shoulder shot of the pod traveling through the Stargate or a reverse angle on Cure Delay freaking out or saying something or working the controls mm-hmm. or whatever. And Kubrick just systematically began eliminating anything like that. Even though we shot tests, he said, no, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. I'm going to stick with the pure point of view. Hmm. And so what developed was this movie, 2001, which is highly nonverbal and also doesn't have hardly any of the normal conventional melodramatic machinations of building tension or conflict between characters or suspense or dialogue or explanation or voiceover or anything. And it was just more of a direct experience. And so that became my training ground. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, this is what movies are like. Count me in. This is really fabulous. And I really like what this man is doing. And I really like what I'm contributing to it. And I became, over time, a pretty important factor in Kubrick's little universe of how to make this movie. Because I kept being able to solve hairy problems that seasoned professionals didn't seem to be able to do because I was not trained. I was thinking outside the box. I was very lateral and nonlinear. And my father had been an engineer. My mother was an artist. And I thought, well, you know, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? And part of it came from Kubrick himself, who said to me, you know, like over dinner or when we'd have private times together, because I hate this obligation, I feel as a director to do conventional melodrama of master shots, two shots, over the shoulders, reverses. And he says, why can't we do something differently? Mm. This was kind of a rhetorical question. I certainly didn't have the answer because I was only 24 at the time, but I could see him trying to figure it out. And then I could see me offering up stuff that tended to solve these problems that were Mm. spectacularly visually beautiful, where dialogue would be redundant or superfluous. And it was just music and images. So that's what got me on this track, which I've been on ever since. And the kind of short version of my story was that I came back to L.A. and started my own career. And and not too long, I talked Universal into directing Silent Running, which I created and wrote. Right. But that was a conventional 35 millimeter movie. I was just getting my sea legs. I didn't know anything about directing or writing, really. And I was very fortunate to work with some very gifted writers uh, and help develop the screenplay. But then I got on the set only because when the question came up, well, who's going to direct this thing you've written? The whole movie was so weird and filled with special effects and hairy problems that they said, well, you should direct it because you know how to do it. <laughs> I said, well, okay, I'll t- that sounds good to me. I'll give it a try. And I was actually went on the set, which I had designed with my friends and a lot of uh, art students from Long Beach State College, from the industrial design department and Mm -hmm. photography students. John Dykstra was one of the people and Wayne Smith and his brother and a bunch of people who went on to have really excellent movie careers were part of our little crew of young people making this fundamentally independent movie Mm -hmm. uh, at a very low budget. And so there wasn't, I couldn't think about Silent Running as another giant screen 70 millimeter epic it was just too early in my career to take on anything as daunting as that Mm -hmm. but uh, 
at the same time I was making Silent Running, I was watching this transformation going on in the movie business itself, which was a time when uh, a guy named Fouad Saeed invented a thing called the Cinemobile, hmm. which was a giant bus equipped for making movies on location. And it was enabled by the fact that there'd been developments of very small, lightweight quartz lights. So they weren't big, bulky lights like normal movies. And the Panavision had developed the Panaflex handheld, lightweight, blimped camera. And so the movie industry was poised to go portable. And that was the age of, uh, you know, many independent looking, but on location movies. Hmm which was a breakaway from the standard Hollywood procedure of building sets and using backlots or locations or, or having even a studio that in those days had a prop department, a wardrobe department, a backlot painting department, a greens department. You know, they had everything inside the studio, whether it was Universal or Warner Brothers or Columbia or MGM. They all had their own backlots right. and their own studio cities. And this was the beginning of the breakup of the motion picture industry as it had been. And a lot of the studios were bought and under the control of real estate developers and all kinds of other purposes. And it developed into selling off and closing the back lots and closing the studios and going mobile. And this was simultaneous with the development of the multiplex cinema, which was, I think, initially developed by a man, a Canadian named Garth Drabinsky. Hmm. And the idea there was that instead of having one large movie theater that had you know, 400, 800 seats or whatever, you could have multiple smaller theaters using the same envelope of space. You would cut a, a big theater into a, a two-plex or a four-plex or a six-plex. And the theaters would be various different sizes of seating. They'd be a 200-seater, a 250, a 300, a 350, and a 400, for example. And they could deftly move the movie from one theater to the next in order to tailor the availability of seating to the size of the audience. And it was all a mathematical formula to optimize occupied seats. And so <laughs> I'm looking at this whole thing from my point of view and saying, wow, you know, I thought this was a giant screen epic movie business like Around the World in 80 Days mm -hmm. or uh, Todd A.O. or uh, The Sound of Music or any number of movies I could list that were giant screen movies. And I'm watching all these big theaters being chopped up into multiplexes. Hmm. And then basically the production of movies in 70 millimeter abruptly ended. And even Bob Gottschalk, who owned Panavision had purposefully decided to try to not even inventory 70 millimeter cameras <laughs> and figured out ways to shoot in 35 and blow it up to 70 millimeters. So you could, the theater could say it was 70 millimeter, but really wasn't even shot that way. Hmm. Yeah, you know, this began my lifelong uh, mission to try to restore or even improve on um, immersive cinema in the face of an industry that really was absolutely not interested in it. We'll be back in a minute to talk more with Doug Trimble about his history and, and how he got into immersive cinema. But it's time for the Optical Trivia Contest, brought to you by Cinefix. Seems like the year is already flying by, but it's almost time for Cinefix 140. They'll be covering Interstellar, the Christopher Nolan film, realized in part through stunning visual effects images created by Double Negative. 
As he had with the Dark Knight trilogy and other films, however, Nolan sought to capture as much action as possible in camera, with on-set special effects orchestrated by Scott Fisher and other practical effects by New Deal Studios. Cinefix will also be covering The Zero Theorem, the latest nightmarish technological world with visual flair from Terry Gilliam, and Exodus, Gods and Kings. Ridley Scott's retelling of the biblical account of Moses leading the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. There'll also be an in-depth Q&A with special makeup effects designers and creature creators Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis, co-founders of Amalgamated Dynamics Incorporated. Woodruff and Gillis will discuss their backgrounds in the 80s creature effects industry, early assignments at Stan Winston Studios, and their creative partnership that has spanned 25 years. All in issue 140 of Cinefix. Pre-order now at Cinefix.com. First off, congratulations to Chuck Forsman and Angel Dominguez, our last two winners of the Optical Trivia Contest. If you'd like to enter to win a one-year print subscription to Cinefix Magazine, all you have to do is answer this question. Just name two of the movies that Douglas Trumbull has worked on during his career. And it's a pretty extensive list, so I don't think it'll be too hard. Send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com by November 20th for your chance to win. Now back to our discussion with Doug Trumbull, talking about the loss of 70mm production and the move to multiplexes. I've seen, uh, for instance, like I've seen 2001 on home video and I've seen it once at kind of a medium sized theater when the, when the AFI had a theater in the Kennedy center. Mm -hmm. But, and I feel like it just hasn't quite had the impact that other people have reported who, who saw it on, you know, those enormous cinema screens. Yeah. Cause that's, that's kind of the thing that was, that was starting to become missing from the theater experience. Yeah. I mean, the, the movie actually depended upon the giant screen medium. Hmm. And when Cinerama was in its heyday, and I think they had about 53 or 54 giant screen, 90 foot wide screen theaters mm. in all the major cities around the world. You know, it's Paris, London, Rome, L.A., New York, Chicago, you name it. Mm -hmm. And they were what we call roadshow plays where a movie would arrive in that theater and possibly play for a year or two. Oh, wow. And never be seen, certainly in smaller theaters, much less on television, which didn't hardly exist at that time. So they had the audience to themselves in these giant screen theaters, but there was this transition that began then, and the giant screen processes of the day, which were D150 and Tadeo and Cinerama, right. all those processes were devised, including VistaVision, devised by the studios or in conjunction with the studios out of fear that television was going to take away their audience. They were just mortified. that They had to get people back into the theaters. Mm -hmm. It didn't concern them too much exactly how you got there. They said, well, if we have air conditioning, people will come in out of the summer heat. Or if we have big, loungy, cushy seats that recline, they'll be more comfortable. Or if it's whatever the amenity was of the day, they wanted to get people into the theaters. Right. But there was no question that theater attendance was in rapid decline and that people were starting to watch television in much, many more hours of the day. And, and it was a transition that was irreversible. Mm -hmm. And that was when guys like Lou Wasserman and at Universal and other people realized, well, let's not fight them, let's join them. And they started producing content for television. Hmm. And so all the studios really became television studios. Interesting. In addition to being movie studios. And so where, when we were making 2001, the movie industry really had pretty much, you know, 95% of people's entertainment time 
And then it started making a transition to where, oh, television is really going to take 10% and then 15% and 20%. And right now, at this moment in time, I think that the television slash computer slash iPod slash tablet release of a movie accounts for about 75% of the total revenue of a movie. Hmm. The bulk of it is not made in theaters, even though they make a big deal out of how a, a release of Transformers or something has made, you know, $300 million in a weekend. That doesn't represent the total amount of money that will be generated from any content over time. Right. As these movies go into digital distribution with DVDs or Blu-rays or whatever. Uh, and around that time, you were starting to work on ShowScan? Yeah, well, that was the ShowScan thing came out of a, a troubled period that I was going through. And I don't think it was my trouble. I think it was that um, <laughs> after I made Silent Running, I was kind of a young, hot shot director, as were a number of other young people at the time. And I had development deals at Warner Brothers and Fox and MGM. And I was scooting all over town. I had little offices and I was developing screenplays here and there. Right. And you don't make much money in development deals. They, they throw you a pittance to try to pull together your idea for a movie or get a screenplay written or whatever you want to do. Sure. And that, that was all well and good. And I had a movie at MGM that I was really excited about called Pyramid which was a kind of an end of the world apocalyptic. The planet is going to burn up and it's stopped rotating and oh. we're near the end and the, someone's invented a time machine to get to the other side of it. Oh, wow. Not a totally unique idea, but it was really quite spectacular and epic. I had the screenplay written by a really terrific writer and the studio was behind the project and we were location scouting and starting to cast the movie. And lo and behold, Kirk Krikorian decided to sell the studio, close it, and build a casino in Las Vegas instead. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm saying to myself, what, 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 what just happened here? <laughs> you mean my movie's not going to happen? They said, no, this is over. Just forget it. You know, take your money and run. So I was in shock, but still young enough to try to recover. And then I had another development deal at Fox mm -hmm. with Arthur Jacobs, who had done Planet of the Apes. And we were developing a big epic underwater spectacle, not unlike what The Abyss became later on. But it was like 2001 Underwater, huh. a futuristic sci-fi adventure underwater. And Arthur Jacobs had done The Planet of the Apes, and he was well-respected in Hollywood. And I had an office on the 20th century lot, and we developed a screenplay for it. And we actually shot some tests for what we called Dry for Wet, <laughs> which was pretty interesting. <laughs> And that was getting all teed up, ready for production. And I'd spent, you know, another year of my life on that. And then Arthur Jacobs suddenly died of a heart attack. Mm. And the entire project got caught up in, in probate court in his estate and couldn't be further developed or produced or turned around or anything. Mm. I said, oh, my God, this, this is another craziness going on. So I tried to recover from that. And I went on to another project, which I had in the pipeline called The Ride, which was at, I think it was at Columbia. I'm not going to mention the names of any of these studio heads because some of them are still alive and well. And, <laughs> but it was, a, it was an idea I had for a very advanced kind of theme park ride that was so powerful and immersive. It was kind of like a combination Cinerama movie, hologram, and roller coaster. Oh, wow. 
And it starts being used as a political tool for the government to try to keep people contented. Mm. And it became a big competition for people to get on the ride to see how long they could stay on and withstand <laughs> all kinds of incredible assaults. So it was kind of, I don't know, I don't know what you call it in today's world, but it was a pretty exciting concept. And it was the kind of the beginning of my thoughts about the future of theme parks and immersive entertainment. Mm. And got that ready to tee up. And then suddenly the entire regime changed at Columbia. And the project got dropped. Hmm. You know, I'm going broke because you don't make any money on development deals. And I was getting desperate. And I'm wondering what the hell is going on in this movie industry that doesn't even know what it's doing or where it's going. And there (laughs) seems to be no continuity of management. Hmm. And it's very hard to turn these projects around from one studio to another because everybody wants to prove that the previous guy was wrong or whatever. And the other side of me, which is kind of the technical side, came up and I went to my lawyer and I said, you know, I've got to make some money here somewhere. And so what if we could talk somebody into doing a research development company to try to study the future of entertainment, technological future of entertainment? You know, where is this all going? What could we do with it? Hmm. He was very ingenious and talked to another man who who will remain nameless at Paramount into forming my little company called Future General Corporation. And I had my pals, Richard Yurisich and John Dykstra and other people that were eager to do something. Right. We rented a building down in Marina Del Rey near L.A. and started doing these projects where I had this interesting business mechanism, which was that Paramount knew that as long as they owned 80 percent of the company and I only owned 20 percent of the company, they could write it off from their tax return. So it was really costing them nothing. Hmm. It was a zero risk entity for them. And they weren't paying much attention. And I just had this business deal where I had to write a one-page memo saying, I have this idea for X, Y, or Z. Send me $25,000 and I'll call you when I'm ready. And so I could have maybe five or six of those going at any one time. And in the first nine months of Future General, we came up with the invention of the show scan process. Because Richard Urasich and I, we said, well, you know, we really like this idea of immersive cinema and giant screens and these epic things. And how are we going to get it back? And how are we going to do it better? We went around town and rented cameras and projectors for every, every film format known to man that I mentioned earlier. <laughs> and started shooting tests and projecting these tests on screens in our little warehouse. And it wasn't until we had done quite a number of those that we realized there really wasn't much substantial difference between any of them. I said, well, it really doesn't matter what the aspect ratio is, and it really doesn't seem to matter too much what the brightness is, as long as it's adequate. Mm. And it really doesn't seem to matter too much whether it's 70 millimeter or 35 millimeter or VistaVision or whatever, but this is not clicking for us. We're not finding some new territory. And that, and only then did we realize, we said, the only thing we have not tried, and that's really never been tried, is high frame rates. Mm. Because they're, you know, in the days of sprocketed film, it was really very challenging to run film faster through a camera or a projector without shredding it up, you know, because it's just, it's plastic with sprocket holes. But nevertheless, we shot some tests of uh, the same scene. Like we shot, we mounted the camera on the front of a car and drove down Tuna Canyon Road or something in Topanga Canyon, a windy single lane road. And we shot it at 24, 36, 48, 60, 66, and 72 frames a second. And then we rigged up some mechanical projectors with double pin Geneva's in them, which is a little too hard to explain over the phone, but it was really quite an easy way to, (laughs) to at least double the frame rate of a 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter projector without increasing the mechanical stresses on it. 
Okay. So we had, we'd rig these projectors that could project at whatever frame rate they were shot at. So if we shot at 24, we projected at 24. If we shot at 36, we projected at 36 and on up to 72 and set up a laboratory experiment, I think at the University of Pomona or something, where we had a, some lab technicians were able to hook up viewers, individual viewers to electrocardiogram, electroencephalogram, galvanic skin response, and electromyogram to try to scientifically evaluate their levels of physiological stimulation, which would be completely separate from drama or suspense or an actor's performance or anything. It would be completely related to the frame rate as the only variable because the shots were all identical. Hmm. And it was a double blind test and the shots were all scrambled. So the viewers didn't even know they were seeing different frame rates or which was which. But we were just graphing them out while they watched these movies. And we conclusively proved to ourselves and ultimately to the U.S. Patent Office that frame rates profoundly increase human physiological stimulation. Hmm. This was, you know, in the late 70s. So we got a U.S. patent. I got an okay from Paramount to shoot a test film, which was called Night of the Dreams. It was a little 10-minute short subject shot on a stage, not at Paramount, but just an independent stage in Hollywood. And it was shot at 72 frames and projected at 72 frames and had six-track stereo sound and a really powerful subwoofer system and everything. And we equipped a theater. It was one of man's theaters in Westwood. And we got them to allow us to put a gigantic screen behind the curtains, which the audience at normal screenings wouldn't see. But we would go in there in the mornings for our demo screenings Hmm. and show this movie called Night of the Dreams. And we had screenings for Paramount Management which led to a screening for the management of Gulf and Western Industries that owned Paramount. Mm -hmm. And the man in charge of Gulf and Western was Charlie Bludorn. He's kind of a well-known maverick businessman who was in charge of (laughs) this giant conglomerate. Mm -hmm. There was a funny name that Gulf and Western was called Engulf and Devour by its (laughs) critics. But anyway, Charlie Bludorn was there and saw a screening of Night of the Dreams, and he turned. He was in the row in front of the management of the studio, who will, will remain nameless, uh, and said, "Gentlemen, if we don't make a movie in this this process, we're fools. This is incredible. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen, and we should do it." Hmm. So I thought, "Wow, my day has finally come. This is really <laughs> this is going to happen." And he said, "Here's my suggestion, Doug: make a movie that's partly normal and partly in the process, so that the audience can see the difference." Uh telegraph to the audience what the difference is. He says, I don't know how you're going to do that, but that's what my suggestion is. And then he left. Hmm. And so I had my mandate uh, from, you know, senior management at Paramount to go ahead and try to figure out what to do. So is that where the, is that, that's where the idea for a brainstorm came yeah, from? It was originally called the George Dunlap tapes. It was written by Bruce Joel Rubin hmm. and it was from a novel that he'd written and it was quite extensive and a little too complicated to be, it was actually two movies worth of material. And so I worked with him and others and distilled it into what became titled Brainstorm. So that part of the movie was this conventional story of a couple who are both involved in a very high technology development company. And so you could witness the whole product development of a device that can read your mind and play your experiences back to someone else. But when the moment comes to play that experience back, the movie pops into show scan and the screen size doubles and the stereo sound kicks in and the audience is going to have this profound experience that's totally different from the movie they've just been watching. Hmm. 
And the script was designed to cycle back and forth between the show scan experience and the conventional experience. Right. And I thought, well, you know, this is going to be really fabulous. I'm finally back to directing. I'm working with a major studio. They're supporting this process. And then all hell broke loose and the entire regime was replaced. Someone had insulted Charlie Bluedorn and got fired. And the entire management team that was supervising Future General Corporation and me was fired. Hmm. And a new team came in, who will remain nameless, <laughs> decided that the whole thing was very misguided and stupid and ridiculous and a waste of time and money. Hmm. And Doug should be let go and stopped from spending our money on these crazy ideas, which also included a 3D video game, the Magicam system of blue screen, uh, virtual set photography, uh, and simulation rides. We have developed all of these four major technologies in the first year of Future General. Hmm. And they didn't want any of them. They said, there's no future in anything that Doug's talking about. We're just a movie company. Forget about this. We're going to close down Future General and stop it. Hmm. This decision was simultaneous with their developing problems on Star Trek, the motion picture, which had been in development for several years, actually, at Paramount. The whole idea of taking a successful television series and turning it into a feature film was a radical concept. And they were all terrified and they didn't know if it would work. And so the project of making a feature film out of Star Trek had started and stopped several times. Right. Tests had been shot. Scripts had been abandoned, restarted, blah, blah, blah. And they finally had decided to go ahead. They hired... Um, Robert Abel and Bob, Associates? No, Robert Abel and Associates, but, the, but Bob Wise was the director. Oh, And right. Bob Wise... You know, I had worked with him on uh, Andromeda Strain. Right. And Robert Abel and Associates over the years had moles in my company who came and copied all my gear <laughs> no. and were competing with, with me and Richard Urasich and actually had hired away some of our employees. And we were kind of pissed off at them and mm. not very happy with Bob Abel and Associates. But anyway, we were just kind of watching, you know, sitting back, watching them fail. Right. Because they had this radical idea that that was simply ahead of its time, that they could pre-visualize the entire movie in a computer mm. and create automated files to, to do robotic motion control of cameras shooting miniatures hmm. and add to that some CGI effects and thereby make Star Trek the motion picture. The reality of it was that it was too early. Computer graphics wasn't ready for it. Motion control wasn't ready for it. And none of it worked. Hmm. And they were several million dollars into the project and had not gone one shot finished. And it didn't concern me at all. I, did, I had nothing to do with it. Right. But they hired my partner, Richard Urasich, to come and do an analysis of, well, what are we going to do? How can we get this movie finished? Because it's failing here. The live action is shot, but the effects is nothing happening. Nothing's working. Hmm. And so Richard came in and did an analysis and said, well, what you need is Doug Trumbull to come in and fix this for you. And he knew I didn't want to do it. And they knew I didn't want to do it. And I was really uh, so disgusted with Paramount closing my company down and refusing to fund my projects that I could see what was on their mind, that they wanted to take my crew and they wanted all the 65 millimeter camera gear I had been amassing for ShowScan mm -hmm. and use it on Star Trek. So this is a little known story, but I was so angry that I took all of the movements out of all my 65 millimeter cameras and put them <laughs> in a safe deposit vault in Beverly Hills and didn't tell anybody about it. 
Oh, wow. And I took the show scan projectors and all of my 65 millimeter post-production gear, put them on pallets and stored them in a warehouse in Long Beach and didn't tell anyone about it because I knew they were going to come to my studio and take my stuff. Right. And lo and behold, they were going to take all the cameras and the magazines and the motors and the blah, 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 and lenses and find out, oh my God, there's no movements in these cameras. Uh, <laughs> I thought that would be pretty funny. That would bring them to the table. Mm-hmm. Well, ultimately it did. It, not because I hid all this stuff. They actually never knew about it. Oh. What happened was that Richard said, you got to get Doug to come in on this. I think he might do it. If you offer him the right deal. And so my lawyer, Ken Kleiberg, and I went into this amazing meeting at Paramount Pictures with people that I don't want to name. Mm-hmm. And the, the head of the uh, Paramount's legal department and all their minions were there. And this head of the studio at the time said, I'm going to tell you what the situation is. Well, Weiss is there. I was there. My lawyer was there. Their lawyers were there. Mm-hmm. But no representative was able was there because they were going to be replaced. And he said, here's the problem. We have taken the largest advance payment of, I think, somewhere around $32 million of blind bids, advance payments from larger exhibition chains of theaters, because they're going to open Star Trek The Motion Picture on December 7th of 1979 or whatever the date was. Oh, wow. And the exhibitors hate blind bidding. Blind bidding was that the studios would uh, say, we're going to make such and such a movie. If you want to book it for your theaters, you have to pay in advance. Mm. And studios were trying to finance production on the back of advance payments from the exhibitors. And the exhibitors were really angry about it and disgusted by it. And and they'd been sold a lot of bad deals where they'd put up advance monies on movies that turned out to be dogs. Mm -hmm. So they wanted blind bidding to go away. They wanted it to be illegal. And so the exhibit community, and I don't know if it was the National Association of Theater Owners or who it was behind the plan, but they went to Paramount and said, listen, if you don't deliver Star Trek The Motion Picture as proposed on December 7th, we're going to close our entire theater chains for the entire <laughs> Christmas holidays Whoa. and file the largest class action lawsuit ever filed against a movie studio to break the back of blind bidding. Holy cow. Okay. So that's the dynamic of what was going on. I'm sitting there and it's me. Like, Whoa, <laughs> this is a really good negotiating position. <laughs> My lawyer and I are winking at each other across the room. And, and so I said, listen, I will do this movie for you. But what you have to do is A, you have to pay me a lot of money, but B, I want out of my contract and I want ShowScan and all these other technologies we developed at Future General back mm-hmm. because I'm not going to get stuck here with people who don't believe in what I'm trying to do. Wow. So that was the deal. They agreed to it. They paid it. They agreed that the day I delivered the movie was the day I became a free man and that the process would come back to me. <laughs> but they said, you know, we, we, that doesn't mean we want to make brainstorm because we don't. We don't believe in it and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll find another home for it. Right. Richard Urasich and everybody I knew, John Dykstra and Apogee and everybody in town all joined together and worked 24 hours a day for seven months to get Star Trek, the motion picture finished. Wow. And I ended up in the hospital for two weeks because I was just completely mortally exhausted and sick and oh, man. Had, you know, gallbladder disease and ulcers and all kinds of things were wrong with me because I was just working too hard, but we got it done. It was satisfactory. I don't think it's the greatest movie of all time by any means, but we did a good job and got it on the screen because I like it a lot. It's okay. But you now one thing that the studio had said at the time, he said, listen, 
we're going to deliver this movie. And I don't care if it makes any sense. I don't care if it has black leader or seen missing cards. I, I don't care what it is, Oh man! but we're going to deliver this movie I don't, in, in whatever shape you guys figure out. And he actually left the room. <laughs> and that, you know, so that was when we made the deal. <laughs> so wow. I thought, well, okay, this is all going to turn out. Well, I can get this done. We can all put our shoulder to the wheel, fix this movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robert Wise was, you know, a really wonderful human being. And he basically, he said, Doug, just do whatever you can and I'll step out of your way. And so I directed major sequences for that movie. Hmm. I'm not credited as directing anything, but I would say, Bob, you know, from, from this scene to that scene, I'm just going to do it my way. Okay. And I'll let you know when it's done. He said, that's fine. Hmm. I did that on the movie several times and, you know, we got it done. And it was one of the closest calls ever in movie history where the prints that were being shipped to the theaters were literally wet out of the developing machine. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to get to do brainstorm and I'm going to do brainstorm in the show scan process. And I'm going to get all this teed up. And that's why I'm rendering all these services and nearly killing myself, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, made a deal at MGM to do brainstorm there. It was David Beagleman at MGM. But when it came down to the question of doing brainstorm in the show scan process, the question came up, which we had already been wrestling with at Paramount, and we'd done quite a few studies on it, which was that if you only had a few theaters equipped with our show scan projectors, you know, how much money could you make? Mm. And what would be the subsequent 24 frame release? And could you actually reduce the 60 frames to 24 frames? Mm. By that time, show scan had been seen by almost everybody in the movie industry, and everyone loved it. When it came down to actually making a movie, MGM got cold feet and said, well, we're not going to make a movie in an oddball process if there's not 20,000 theaters that can show it. And we went to the exhibitors and said, well, would you like to convert to the show scan process? Because this is the beginning of a whole new realm of movie impact. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we would, we actually would, but only if all the studios would unanimously agree to start making movies in show scan. (laughs) That's a tall order. A tall order, impossible catch 22. That I did everything in my power to try to show this to everybody, get everybody on board, this big transformation mm. to bring spectacle and showmanship back to this moribund industry that was small screens and chopped up multiplexes and try to bring you know spectacle back to theaters. And this is all back in um, late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't make it happen. So I had to reluctantly and tragically agree to make brainstorm conventionally. And I remember this meeting, I said, well, I'll I'll shoot part of brainstorm in 70 millimeter, part of brainstorm in 35 millimeter, and the movie will change from 35 to 70. The aspect ratio would change. It will change from mono sound, stereo sound, and we'll do everything we can to try to carry forth this idea of immediate change. Right. But that's all I can do under these circumstances. And they kind of reluctantly agreed to let me do aspect ratio changes and sound changes. I actually just saw that on Blu-ray for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And then even on my you know little eight foot screen at home, it's it's an impressive transition from one to the other. I'm glad they preserved it because it didn't always get preserved. And they made DVDs of the movie that everything was just cropped to one aspect ratio. Uh. The whole thing made me completely crazy. <laughs> um, but anyhow. I did get the movie almost finished when Natalie Wood died during production. Right. And this was the tragedy that every filmmaker dreads having to ever go through. Right. And that's when I found out that there was something up at MGM and the actual circumstances of it were that 
we were almost finished with principal photography. We wrapped shooting in North Carolina. We had some sets and stuff built in LA, which we had already been shooting on. Mm -hmm. And at the time of her death, which was over a long Thanksgiving weekend, I only had three shots left of Natalie. Mm. And I, you know, in spite of the fact that I'm completely bereft that she's gone and this tragedy has happened. Yeah. I went into the cutting room and tried to figure out, well, is there any real serious problem here? But what in fact happened was that without ever calling me or anyone else, the management of MGM declared what's called force majeure, which is an act of God, mm -hmm. you know, like a hurricane that <laughs> triggered termination of the movie's production in, in its entirety. Jeez. And the entire crew and I were laid off. And they decided to not ever finish the film and exert a $15 million insurance claim against Lloyd's of London right. to get their money back. The truth of the matter was that MGM was broke. Hmm. They didn't have any money in their coffers. They probably couldn't even afford to finish the movie, much less distribute the movie. And that my belief was that there was a fraudulent insurance claim. And that it, in fact, was easy to finish the movie without Natalie Wood. And I didn't need these three shots. I, I cut the movie together myself without the shots and proved that to myself that it was no problem. But MGM never asked. They just terminated the movie. Hmm. So I thought that was very telling that they would never ask. It tells you that yeah. they had some objective in mind that had nothing to do with wanting to finish the movie or make money or anything. Hmm. So thus began my my next tragic episode of trying to get the movie completed against the will of MGM and going under a legal deposition with Lloyd's of London, where I had to say easily, I can finish this movie. And they said, well, then we're going to support you to finish the movie hmm. even against MGM's will, because we were absolutely refused to pay this insurance claim. So I got the movie finished, but I was odd man out of the studio. No one wanted to be there. No one wanted to see the movie. No one wanted to see it finished. Hmm. They were all, against the entire thing. And that was when I barely got the movie finished and decided to leave Hollywood altogether. I mean, I just said, if there's stuff going on in this industry that actually can result in killing your actress, yeah. uh, you have to count me out. Hmm. And I'm going to leave and I'm going to go restart my career someplace else and I will do something else. And it doesn't matter to me what it is. It can be carpentry. I could become an <laughs> illustrator. I don't care what it is, but I'm not going to stay in Hollywood because I had just, this was just the straw that broke the camel's back for me because I had had nothing but a series of bad experiences sequentially over the years prior to that. Well, it was interspersed with these really nice times where Richard Urasich and I did Close Encounters with Steven Spielberg and it went really great. And we developed a lot of new technology and right. special effects techniques. And Steven was very gracious and allowed me to direct some sequences even for you know, close encounters. Right. And the same happened on Blade Runner where Ridley Scott would just say, Doug, you know, just do this sequence and we would do it. Mm. We all got along great and we were having a really great time and, and showing conclusively and consistently that we could produce really great work, but it was work for contract. It wasn't me directing. Right. And then when I got back to directing it went so badly, I said, you know, this is just no fun. I mean, <laughs> why be in this industry at all? If this is what it's like. Sure. But I'm, I'm glad those beautiful images are there, especially the, the stuff at the end, kind of going into the you know, heaven or, or energy source mm -hmm. or, or whatever it is. Just yeah. so much gorgeous stuff there. And yeah. I, I love the little memory bubble concept as well. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, you know, I just think it would have been 
quite a, a deal changer for the movie industry if it had been in Showscan and if it hadn't gone through this tragedy yeah. and Natalie would have lived and we'd all gone on to better things. Yeah. It would have been a, a, quite a different history. What a cliffhanger. Will Douglas Trumbull ever get back into the film industry? Find out next time on The Optical. Thanks very much to Douglas Trumbull for being on. You can find out more about Doug's work and his new immersive cinema format, Magi, at his website, douglastrumbull.com. We've got a lot more to chat with him about next time. In the meantime, you can visit us at opticalpodcast.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Optical Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. It's free and easy to do. Just search for Optical in the podcast section of iTunes or follow the link from our website. Thanks also to Cinefx Magazine for sponsoring us. And a reminder that you can go to Cinefx.com to pre-order Cinefx 140, covering Interstellar, The Zero Theorem, Exodus Gods and Kings, and an in-depth Q&A session with Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis of ADI. Cinefx also has some great stuff going on at Facebook.com slash Cinefx and on YouTube as Cinefx Magazine, where you'll find effects breakdowns and other great videos relating to visual effects. Thanks to Digital Drew for the music in this episode, and you can find more of his music at DigitalDrew.com. That's D-R-O-O dot com. And thanks to Mike Gower for designing our Aperture logo. I'm your host, Mark Bosco. See you next time. You got to shut me up if I'm just going on too long, but this is. (laughs) Well, I'm enjoying it, so.